I'm Sean Delaney, and you're listening to What Got You There. What Got You There is a must-follow for entrepreneurs, creatives, high achievers, and change makers. Each week, I sit down with some of the world's most influential people and focus on the journey behind their success. We uncover the strategy, tactics, and routines that help them get there. Now it's your journey, so it's time to learn what's going to get you there. What got you there with Sean Delaney? Uh, what got you there with Sean Delaney? What got you there with Shonda Laney? Uh, what got you there with got you, got you? When we do what we do, uh, you know, from whiteboard to kind of scale, at that whiteboard session, you have to flip your mental model upside down. It has to be completely different. You know, I like to, you have to actually say, rather than why can't someone do something, you have to ask yourself, why can someone do something? And if that someone can do something, um, who would be that person to do it? And how would you do it? Ed Sim is the founder of Bold Start Ventures, a first check investor for bold founders reinventing the enterprise. Ed loves to work with engineering-driven founders with a laser-sharp focus on product. On this episode, Ed goes over his investing principles, where he developed his tenacious drive, and what he sees in the most successful entrepreneurs. This is a masterclass you will not want to miss from a 23-year veteran in the venture capital space. Hey, it's Sean. And before we get started on this week's episode, I wanted to share what I've been working on behind the scenes for the past few months, and that's my new technology job hiring startup called Culture Finders. Culture Finders is here to save the millions of people from working in jobs they hate and dread going to every day. If you've ever been in a job you can't stand or hired someone who looked great on their resume but turned out not to be great and destructive to your company's culture, then listen up because Culture Finders is for you. Culture Finders is a technology-backed talent matching service that connects job seekers with employers based on optimal culture matching, so both parties can seamlessly merge together. When you create a profile, you'll receive your culture connection score and get matched with your dream company based on maximal compatibility and shared interest. To create your profile, all you have to do is play our fun brain games, uncover your unique personality profile, and answer a few questions. That's it. You're just a few clicks away from connecting to the opportunity that's been waiting for you. If you're a job seeker looking for that dream job or run a company who wants to save the headache of bad hires, head to culturefinders.com to get set up with your culture connection score today. That's culturefinders.com. For all the coffee lovers out there, listen up. I'm crazy about the coffee I fuel my body with, and that's why I'm always grabbing a bottle of super coffee from Key to Life. Super Coffee has something to satisfy every coffee drinker's needs. Check out their brand new pods for the quick pick-me-up that are filled with vitamins and antioxidants. Before every podcast, I fill up on their Super Espresso, and my wife and I are borderline obsessed with their plant-based Coconut Mocha Super Coffee Cold Brew, which has 10 grams of protein, no added sugar, and is keto-friendly. I love the coffee and the three brothers so much that started this company. That's why I became an early investor. There's a reason they just got ranked number 18 on Inc. 5000's fastest growing companies. So if you want to check out what they've got going on, head to drinksupercoffee.com and see what everyone's talking about. Ed, welcome to What Got You There. How are you doing today? Good. Hey, Sean, thanks for, uh, for having me. I'm a huge fan of your, uh, of your show, so really excited to finally be on. No, it's a, it's a true honor. You're someone I've learned a lot from, uh, continuing to learn from. So this is going to be really fun for me. But I thought a really fun starting place might be around lacrosse. We were both former college lacrosse players, you playing in the early 90s at Harvard. I would love to know, do you have just a, a lasting memory from your time there that's really stuck with you? Yeah, I mean, I would say that 
I remember when I was going uh, to Harvard, a lot of my friends were giving me a hard time saying, you know, you guys aren't going to be any good. You know, why don't you go to the ACC and play down there? And I remember my freshman year, um, we were actually number three in the country and uh, flew down to Carolina to play in the quarterfinals. And, uh, you know, we knew we had the odds stacked against us. We ended up getting walloped, uh, uh, you know, by, by your uh, Tar Heels. But it was a great memory. I remember sitting at the face-off circle against my uh, former teammate, Jim Busick, who ended up being media of the year that year, saying, man, I never thought you'd ever be here. So, you know, in a way that was quite quite a victory. And then while I was, I was at school, I learned about uh, this thing called venture capital. So I think it all ended up okay for everyone. Yeah, certainly ended up in a good position for yourself. I'm wondering, did you have any teammates or even coaches that just had a really strong um, lasting memory for you about who you are today? I'm thinking about that. You know, actually, my high school coach, Joe McFadden uh, from Loyola High School, had a lasting impression on me. Look, I wasn't the most talented guy coming out of high school and growing up in Baltimore. I didn't even know anything about college lacrosse. I mean, I played football and lacrosse and I did it because it was fun and all my friends were doing it. And then like uh, junior year in high school, uh, Joe's like, hey, Ed, I think you might be able to get recruited. I'm like, what's that? <laughs> so, um, but, but the lasting impression that, that he said, I was a midfielder. And he said, you know, hey, middies, you know, when we do these suicide runs, he would always say, you know, middies got to haul the mail. So he'd always make us do one or two extra. So he, he was extra hard on the midfielders, made us run, run, run. And ultimately, you know, we won the ch- championship in Baltimore uh, my senior year. And my junior year, we were uh, number one in the state until we lost to Boys Latin. So that whole mentality of just put your head down, bring a work ethic, uh, bring your lunch pail every day, like that blue collar mentality is something that I carry with me every day and what I look for in the founders as well. So that chip on the shoulder, I would love to even circle back. I know in one of your college essays uh, for your applications, you, <laughs> you, you wrote about this. And I would love for you just to touch on this for a minute. Yeah, I think, are you referring to that tweet about the HBS thing or more about the Harvard College thing? Um, Because I put out a tweet that um, I just chip on my shoulder because when I was in college, I learned about venture capital and I sent out about 120 letters. Uh, This was in 93, 120 letters by mail, uh, nicely formatted, nice paper, expensive (laughs) to every private equity, venture capital and LBO shop out there. By the way, I didn't know the difference between any of them. They all sounded the same to me. And I got one letter back. I was like, hey, kid, just get some work experience. <laughs> so I went down to New York. And, you know, when I was at JP Morgan, um, I was basically a glorified data entry analyst. I mean, let's face it, that's, that's what I was. But I was working on the derivatives team. And I would come in and enter data all day long every day, trying to put um, yesterday's prices into the model to figure out what we should be trading today. And my buddy and I, this guy, Jeff Grills, uh, a Duke guy, uh, was hilarious. Like, Ed, let's, let's automate our job. So we started learning how to code. We, we learned Visual Basic. Um, and so we started automating kind of our whole job to the point that a month later, we'd come in and enter 50 numbers and then we'd leave for three hours and take a long lunch. And uh, so anyway, fast forward, uh, at that point in time, I downloaded Mosaic Browser, which was you know the beginning of Netscape uh, back in the day. And I was like, I really wanna get into venture capital. I'd learned about it uh, from one of my lacrosse teammates uh, in college. And then I realized that everyone went to Harvard or Stanford Business School. And I was like, oh, man, you know, so I applied to those schools. I got rejected from Harvard and Stanford. This was three years out of college, but I got into Chicago and Wharton. And I was like, you know what? Um, Maybe I'll try this venture capital thing. So I found an ad in the Wall Street Journal, believe it or not, Sean. And I I faxed faxed a resume and that's how old I am. Sorry about that. Uh, And I got a call back and they're like, hey, can you meet me like in an hour? 
So I met met these uh, um, you know venture capitalists in the city. They had somehow wrangled their way to raise money from the New York City Economic Development Corporation to turn New York City into a high tech hotbed, whatever that meant, right? But this was '96. There was no venture capital at the time, and and the guys like, look, you know how to code, like, why don't you join us? So I ended up deferring from Wharton. I joined this firm for two years at the very beginning of the internet boom, and eventually I met my mentor, um, this guy Bob Lesson. Bob uh, was the vice chairman of Smith Barney. He was the head of their investment bank. Uh, before that, he was the youngest vice chairman ever at Morgan Stanley. And he put about 15 million of his own money to work into, into angel startups. Like he would basically invest all over the place. So he and I became friendly. And he's like, Ed, you know, I'm thinking about leaving Smith Barney to start my own thing. And, um, you know, part of it is I want to start the venture capital firm and you should run it for me. And I was like, what? He's like, you speak the young language of the internet. You understand those folks. I speak the old language of the corporate world of you know how to talk to CEOs of the Fortune 500. That's what I've done. And together we can kind of bring the Silicon Valley approach with this New York twist to, to investing. And he's like, by the way, uh, I know you just got into Harvard Business School. So finally, five years later, Sean, here's the chip on the shoulder. I got into Harvard Business School in 1998. I had the option to either join Bob and start Don Treader Ventures and run it with him or go to school. Uh, and I tried to defer. I was like, yeah, let me try to defer. <laughs> and uh, no, but 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 the time, you know, if you wanted to become a successful venture capitalist, there was only one route. You go to Stanford Business School or Harvard Business School, that was it. That, that was literally it, if you wanted to be the best. And this shows about kind of what got you here. Why do you want to be the best? I was like, man, I guess I'm going to have to defer that and try to go on my own path, right? It wasn't like you couldn't get a job at Sequoia or Klein or Excel or anything else. And so I've carried that chip on my shoulder for a long time. And so I ended up not going to school. Uh, Bob and I kind of started Don Treader, and you know, in 2010, I ended up leaving. Uh, he unfortunately passed away, I think, in 2011 or 2012, sadly. Um, and I started Bold Start kind of around that time um, when he was sick, uh, and that's kind of where I am today. So that, that, that's the story. Talk about someone going against the grain. I mean, so many variables. Like, forget about not even being in Silicon Valley, New York, just taking on something new. I would love to know though. What specifically about you did Bob see, right? It wasn't just that you were younger and you could speak the language. There must have been innate skills you had that he identified within you. You know, I, I think I was kind of always curious. I was always learning, right? So I kind of always ask people like, what are you a geek about? You can be a geek about anything. It could be cooking. It could be working out. It could be like technology. But I was just intellectually curious just about kind of enterprise software. For whatever reason, I just fell in love with enterprise software. I wanted to learn everything about it. Um, and I think I was not afraid. Like Bob, you know, a lot of people can be intimidated by Bob, right? Because he's, you know, super high up guy, very successful. And here I am, this young 25-year-old kid. But I'd like reach out to him like, hey, Bob, let's, let's grab drinks or let's uh, check out this deal together. So, you know, in many ways, I think just not being afraid of someone saying no um, I think was really important. And then I think, you know, two is I just was, I, I was passionate about it. He could tell that I was fired up about this and enterprise software and venture capital. Like this was my dream. And, and I think he could see that in me. Yeah. When someone has that, I mean, it's just so obvious that it just, it's oozing out of their pores almost. One of the things you mentioned, uh, within bold start is just courage and conviction. And that's something that is just innate in you. And you kind of mentioned that you had that courage, where did this develop for you? Yeah, you know, I, I think I got to tell you, like my parents um, are immigrants. So my father is North Korean um, and my mom's South Korean. 
And he actually, my father actually like walked like a hundred miles kind of into South Korea and was pulled into the war when he was young. And eventually they made it to the States. So I was born in Baltimore in 1971. And just my dad, my dad started out in the mailroom um, at this kind of medical publishing company. He eventually became head of IT. But, but man, so, so we didn't have a lot of money growing up. Um, you know, I was that kid with the, with the old shoes, uh, with the shorts from Sears and whatnot. Right. And so I always had this thing in me, just like I watched his work ethic. He just plowed through, plowed through, plowed through. And so I think that that is part of it for me. And so I think I've always had this chip on my shoulder, but my parents, I get a lot from my parents. I mean, I, I just, I'm starting to read books right now in North Korea, just understanding. I'm reading a book called Dear Leader that one of our investors from um, uh, from an endowment told me about. But it's about kind of someone that was in the inner circle in North Korea and kind of, you know, uh, left and defected. And just hearing about that because he doesn't really talk a lot about kind of what happened there. But it really gives me a lens into kind of, I guess, who I am and and, and partly where he came from. Your father actually escaped North Korea when he was 14 or 15, correct? Yep. Yeah. So this wasn't just about he started out in the mailroom. I mean, this is was way before that. Just that that chip in the shoulder, just the yep. unbelievable ability to overcome adversity. It sounds like. Yeah. Yeah. And 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 dreaming, right? So and then like he's like he he literally left with a trunk, and my and, and my mother, um, you know, and my brother is two years older, than, uh, four years older than me, you know, pursuing the American dream, and and that to me was, and they instilled education. Um, you know, they worked hard. They made a lot of sacrifices for us uh, to be here. And um, so anyway, so, so I think that that's courage and conviction, like unlike any you could ever imagine. And then I think just just from that, I just like, look, I can't be afraid. Like I have to take risks like I can't, you know, I can't just sit here and, and not take risks. Right. And, and so that that was the thing for me. It was just I feel really fortunate to, to actually have had that have them instill that uh, in us and, and the confidence. Really, they're like, look, if you get a good education, you can do anything you want. And if you are driven. And if you actually kind of work hard, like good things can happen. That's why we're in America. And that's kind of what I see in founders, right? I mean, we have this, we want to find founders with a chip on their shoulder that have this dream and passion, like passion to me, uh, you know, really trumps a lot of other things, right? It can take you through the worst of times, the darkest of times. And yet if you keep plugging away, I've seen so many founders in our portfolio, just eventually just make it. And that's what I love about this job. I mean, I get to help them make it just like my parents did, you know, for me. Yeah, if you don't have that passion, I mean, shit's really going to hit the fan. Uh, anytime you're one of the startups, so you better be able to plow through this. Dude, this shit, this shit is hard, man. Startups are hard. <laughs> There's a lot going into it. It's it's funny though because you are such an early investor, and we're going to get more into your thesis uh, here yep. in a minute. But I would love to just know. I mean, the first time meeting a founding team, how do you see through that? Right, like a lot of people can be a great salesman and kind of pitch themselves. How do you see that true, deep intellectual curiosity, that passion? How do you get that on the first time? And Sean, you're asking some great deep questions. <laughs> I love this. Um, look, for me, it's kind of like, look, I've, I view myself as a founder because I started, you know, Don Treader with Bob in kind of 1998. I started uh, both start with my partner, Elliot Durbin in 2010. But, you know, I think about um, the best founders start their companies born out of some pain mm -hmm. or problem that they kind of experience. And we only fund technical founders, you know, engineers who code, because these are, these are the founders where they're like, oh man, like, I can solve this problem. I can code through this problem. I can automate this problem. Like just like kind of I did with the Excel spreadsheets. I automated my job and there's still lots of automation happening. And you you can't sleep at night. You wake up in the middle of the night taking notes. You're in the shower, you know, singing a song and then thinking about the problem. You're in your car. But that's the passion we look for. And I know it kind of juxtapose that against the type of founders that we used to see sometimes during the internet boom. The first internet boom, 
I, you, you had these carpetbagger founders where they would draw a whiteboard and say, okay, this company does this, this does this. And then here, there's this white space here, but they had zero experience. I'm not saying that's not a good thing. I mean, some people can be very successful doing that, but for us um, and just kind of who we are and what DNA we have, we love the passion. We, we love born out of pain and experiencing that pain and trying to solve that because those, those are the founders that will work through the hard times because Sean, you just said this, this shit ain't easy. Yeah. Um, and they'll stick with it um, if they're fired up about the problem. I absolutely love that. I, I'd be really curious to know, have you ever had a founding team come into you that doesn't have just above average ability technically, but you were almost sold on them? Or are you guys just so strong in your conviction that, that that's not even negotiable? We're pretty strong in our conviction. If you look at most of the things we do, it's, it's, it's really technical founders, but you know, it doesn't have to be the whole team. It could be one technical founder and kind of one business oriented founder too, right? Because a lot of times, um, you know, you can run into problems too only funding technical founders, because what we like to say is that you have to have passion, but then you have to have this unique insight into what you're building as a product and going hand in hand with the product is your go-to-market. How you build your product also dictates your go-to-market. For example, if I want to build a frictionless bottom-up SaaS application, I need to make it super easy for people to get onboarded, to use it, you know, have incredible time to value. If I'm going to go into a large enterprise and sell a top-down million-dollar deal, I better make sure it's enterprise ready. I better make sure it connects to all the databases. I better make sure that it has single sign on all these things. So, so that kind of how your product and what you think about really dictates the model. So it's not just technical founders, but they have to have a, a depth of thinking around go to market. They have to have a depth of thinking around telling a story because that is the most important thing, by the way, too, is telling a story. Uh, because if you can't tell a story in a, in a very succinct way, it's hard to recruit people to join your, your movement because you're probably creating something new or creating a new market. It's also hard to kind of convince people to buy your product, which may not even exist. So, so all those things are, are things we look at. Yeah, a lot of variables at play there. I'm wondering, and this doesn't have to be someone you invested in, it might even be better if it's not. Is there a founder that kind of fits that criteria? And this could be throughout history that just easy for the listeners to identify with? Uh, the criteria of just kind of um, you know, defying the odds or defying or being, the odds, technical background, being able to distill down their thinking to to let that know for for both pitching it to companies. Uh, I can yeah, I can tell you a couple right now, but one in our portfolio that really stands out um, is a is a company called Sneak S N Y K dot I O, and the founder's name is Guy Pajarni, um, and Guy Po. Uh, is is a founder that we backed previously at his first company called Blaze, which he sold to Akamai. That was out of Fund One, and then Fund Three. You know, Guy and I had been chatting. Uh, you know, every quarter catching up. Guy, when are you going to leave? When you when do your stock options vest? Like, when can you start something? And he's like, he's like, Ed, I got three ideas. And I was like, Guy, the first two aren't really you, but I can see why you'd want to do them. But the third one, that's you. I said, I'll give you a check right now. <laughs> and I said, if you find another co-founder, I'll give you a higher price. He goes, give me a month. And, and his, his idea was simple. He said, look, I believe that developers are going to become more and more responsible for, for kind of uh, delivering code and the speed at which they do so because of the cloud and open source is only going to accelerate. And I want to make the most developer friendly, the easiest way for developers to secure all of their open source code without actually having to, to waste time. So this technology will constantly scan all their code and all the open source modules they're using. And then not only would say, hey, here's a problem or vulnerability, but click the button and fix it. Hmm. And I remember that, you know, we didn't have a huge fund at the time, by the way. So fund three ended up being a $47 million fund, but we only had $20 million to start. 
but we were investing as if we had 40, 40 million. So we, we wrote a big check on our side and, you know, kind of going with the courage and conviction story, but we still needed more money from other people. So I remember helping Guy, you know, talk to other venture capitalists and they're like, no, I don't think Guy can do it. I don't think he can evangelize. No, there's a company called Veracode out there. You know, I don't think there's this developer-friendly security thing. Okay, fast forward five years later. By the way, the first two years were really hard because he, he really stayed onto this vision of I'm going to make developers really happy and actually make security so easy for them. That was his whole North Star, developer-friendly. Hmm. Fast forward uh, a month, month ago, we announced that the company's worth $2.6 billion now uh, in five years. And, and this is guy who, who people said he can't do it, who, who he said that developers don't care about security. And, and man, I'm, I'm so happy to, to see kind of what he's doing in the company he's, he's building right now, because I think this could be, you know, like on, on the levels of Datadog in terms of, in terms of kind of um, bringing security into a developer way versus selling it down through the chief security officer. And so that, that is a great example of someone that, I remember being in one board meeting where we're just like, you know, guys like, I'm kind of stuck here. Like enterprises want me to go kind of deliver this new software on premise, but he's like, maybe I can kind of do a tweak where I can do a little agent where the agent takes the technology and obfuscates kind of the data coming through and we can still provide the answer. So we did that. And then fast forward, here we are today. And so that's patience, that's courage and conviction. And by the way, we gave guy two more checks after the first check, we gave him two more checks before he even got to his first, you know, big round. Hmm. Um, to, to stick with them. And so that for us is just, he's passionate. He never changed. And now developer-friendly security has expanded from just open source to the cloud, to containers and everything else. And I just love that story about, about Guy. That's a remarkable story. And it, I think it does a really good job distilling down what your thesis is as an investor with Bolt Start. I mean, you guys are the first check, right? We are. We, we, we love, you know, we like to say it's like from whiteboard to scale, right? Because we love kind of that, that kind of, let's roll out the whiteboard together. Let's draw, let's draw together, right? You know, it brings out that like, you know, kind of that exciting feeling. You know, I got to also tell you another story about Superhuman, because I know a lot of your listeners probably, uh, I don't know, Sean, if you use Superhuman. Yeah, Rahul, uh, his story is unbelievable. Yeah. So I'm pumped about this. Yeah. So Rahul, we're Rahul's uh, in Rahul's first company, Reportive. Okay. And, found them and, early, huh? <laughs> oh gosh. So, so this is, this is a repeat founder. Like our MPS scores, if founders come back to us first, like we love it, like guys first company blaze, but reportive was kind of that, you know, what I love about Rahul was that just he hacked into Gmail and he built kind of that first kind of, he's responsible for all the bloatware inside of Gmail because now you can put applications tied to your email inside of Gmail, but that was him that started that whole process. Um, there's something special about him and uh, he ended up selling the company to, to LinkedIn. And, um, you know, of course, we every quarter like, hey, Rahul, when are you going to start your next thing? Right. When are you gonna <laughs> and, uh, and and so the thing about Rahul, though, uh, was that, you know, he's always had this vision of make people brilliant at what they do. That was it. From Reportive, it helped you actually learn about people super fast inside of email without actually leaving it. And that was always his vision and mission. And I remember that uh, he's like, uh, he's like, Ed Elliott, I got this great idea. I'm actually going to own the whole stack. So the problem with what he did before with the reportive was that he was tied to Gmail and Gmail could giveth and taketh away depending on what they decide to do. It's like, I'm going to do the whole stack. I'm going to literally, I'm going to build a, 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 the fastest email ever. And I'm going to charge people $29 per month or $360 per year. Like, are you freaking nuts? <laughs> I mean, seriously, like, I mean, so everyone, like there's this uh, Twitter thread going over this weekend, but everyone's like, Hey, email is a huge market. I'm like, no, it wasn't. No one was paying for email. Yeah. 
No one was pay, no one was going after. So 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 Rahul started this whole thing, and everything he did was inherently unscalable in a way. Uh, uh, he focused on product for the first two years, heads down. He actually even he was so into design and so into simplicity, but that's where the elegance and power comes from. Everything was like a command line interface, you know, command K, uh, which everyone's starting to do now. But also, like he was so detail oriented, he even built his own font. He made his own font to make it even easier to read, almost like a newspaper magazine like style. Um, and then he slowly onboarded users. So, you know, not only were Elliot and I kind of the first check in, we actually were, we wanted to be the first users. So we we're the first kind of users outside of the team uh, onto the platform. And I just remember kind of, you know, when, when Rahul actually came and told us the story, he just showed up uh, at our office and my daughter happened to be there, who was 10 at the time, uh, Skylar. And she's, she basically was hanging out watching this kind of talk. And Rahul had this picture of Gmail. And then uh, he had another picture where he X'd out a whole bunch of stuff and said like, I want to make it super simple, go back to where it was. And they showed us this interface. And he was trying to explain it. And my daughter goes, it looks like text messaging for email. He's like, yeah, that, that's kind of it. And so anyway, we're like, we're like, we're in for the check right here. Here you go. Can we put a million in? Rahul's like, no, I'll only take 250. I was like, shit. <laughs> so, so then we had it, we had, it took us like six more months to dribble in 250, 250, 250, you know, before first round ended up investing. But the funny thing is, is that uh, then you started doing this bespoke onboarding thing where you'd spend an hour. Actually, you would show up in person and walk you through, Sean, sit down next to you. And then it turned into 45 minutes and it turned to 30 minutes. But, but now, and then he also did the wait list. But now think about this. People thought he was crazy charging for email. People thought it was crazy doing something inherently scalable by doing bespoke onboarding. Uh, people thought he was crazy, you know, uh, for the wait list and everything else he does. But now look at the world today. Everyone, you know, there's like a superhuman for X for everything, right? I mean, people now are doing bespoke onboarding. You know, he's got his whole method of, of MPS score. He, he actually, you know, which is basically like, could you live without this, right, or not? Um, and so he basically started a movement when everyone said he couldn't do it. And that's what I love about Rahul, man. I mean, just the, he, he stuck to his vision from reportive to superhuman to where he is today. And, and he deserves all the credit because there are a lot of naysayers along the way. Um, and now it's, it's great to see people kind of, you know, copying some of his models today when they said that it was inherently unscalable. I love that. Like that to me gets me fired up every day when, when I wake up. Yeah, talk about someone just sprinting uphill against every obstacle imaginable. Uh, if you haven't checked out any of his stuff, he's got a lot of writing online. He's done some great interviews, but anytime he talks, it's just a pure masterclass in, in design, business oh. thing, everything. So yeah, he's uh, he's someone I've learned a lot from as well. So this is this is exciting to hear some of these some of these early stories. One thing you mentioned a few minutes ago though about Rahul and, and his north star and what drives him, and I'm wondering though, it seems like a lot of companies from start to where they are in terms of like getting to success there's a lot of change there. How often do you see change from the, the initial vision to, to where they finally make it? Yeah, it's funny. It's like I was actually asked uh, by a reporter uh, last week talking about the, the old pivot, right? <laughs> when should someone pivot? When should someone not? I'll tell you one of my early um, successes was uh, I was one of the first investors in GoToMeeting uh, and on the board of that company. And uh, believe it or not, the company was called Expert City before that. This was like in 1999 or yeah, 1999. And the idea was that um, they had this core technology that would allow someone to take over someone else's desktop through the browser. So you didn't require a download or anything. It was just kind of right through the browser. The problem though, back then was that we had dial up access and there wasn't this trust out there. And they wanted to create a marketplace called Expert City 
uh, for technical support where you could get help on like, let's say doing a PowerPoint presentation or getting even, you know, configuring windows, which was kind of the, the predominant thing back in the day. Um, and we ended up spending $10 million on that. And it actually went nowhere <laughs> because, you know, because it just, and so one day we're just like, you know, the founders are like, look, we have this core technology. And by the way, that was our thesis. If the marketplace didn't take off, there's this core technology, like there's probably some value there. We can do something with it. They started this thing called go to my PC. Um, and they launched go to my PC and the thing just grew like crazy. Right. I mean, it, it literally just started taking off. And that was basically, you could actually take over your desktop uh, through your browser, like your home machine, you can access it from your browser at work and just do like financial stuff or whatever it was you're doing. Um, and, and the company grew, it grew from like 1 million to $6 million to 17. And then we're like, you know, I think we can disrupt the video conferencing market, you know, and, and I, WebEx was the dominant player at the time. Uh, and they're like, you know, let's come out with an all you can eat pricing model. And let's leverage some of our desktop technology to do screen sharing. Uh, and let's just break up the monopoly and just change everything and be disruptive. So they came out with GoToMeeting um, and, and boom, that thing went to 35 million. Um, and then in 2004, um, it was a dark days, um, kind of the internet because like you know, no one was public. I think Google went public maybe later that year. And we ended up selling the company for you know, a fair amount of cash to, to Citrix. And fast forward up until about two years ago, that uh, company, according to the head of M&A, who I became friends with, um, that ended up doing $600 million a year of ARR for Citrix. So uh, part of it for me is timing. It's like we did well, but man, if we could have held on for another year or two and kind of hit, hit that public market, it, it would have been another another notch. But you know, I felt really excited because here, here was these founders, they built a cool tech, it didn't work. The initial market didn't work and look where it ended up today. Um, I mean, you know, and in fact, I think a lot of the folks at Zoom, uh, the company was based in Santa Barbara of all places too. So it wasn't kind of your typical place to invest in, but a lot of the engineering folks from Zoom are actually from uh, GoToMeeting. Huh. They're sitting in Santa Barbara right now. So, so you know, I've been around a long time and, and seen a number of things. So it, it's, it's, you know, just timing, right? Timing just slightly off. Look, look where Zoom is today and look where GoToMeeting was. It was still fine. Uh, you know, uh, you know, 10x plus multiple, but man, <laughs> could add another zero or two in that thing. Yeah, that, that wouldn't be so bad. What, what I'm so fascinated by w with you is just your decision making ability, both because lack of information you have, and then the ability to take on that new information and make more clear decisions moving forward. So do you have a distinct decision making process after meeting with a founding team? Um, well, look, I mean, w when we actually kind of think about um, founders and writing that first check, uh, we covered something that I, I kind of think about as the five P's for us. Um, I kind of think about kind of the pain and, and the problem, right? What, what pain, you know, companies that are born out of pain, as I mentioned earlier, are the ones where the founders kind of are the most passionate about solving those problems, right? Because they've experienced and lived it. So I kind of think about that. And then I think about kind of the product itself, right? Kind of what is the unique insight that you're bringing to the table? Uh, and then more in particular, the unique technical insight you're bringing to the table um, as you kind of go through that. Hmm. Tied to that second P of product is how do you think about go to market, um, right? As, as I mentioned earlier, you can even, if you're going bottoms up, there's a different kind of product you're building and a different kind of methodology to kind of attack the market versus kind of going for the big, you know, million dollar plus deals. Um, then I tie that to passion, right? You know, the passion kind of comes down to, um, you know, being mission driven, right? Nothing's going to stop you. This goes back to kind of what we talked about earlier, the, like the sports days, you just keep running through walls. People are going to say no. And, and you have to, 
yeah, you can hear it, but use that to motivate you versus kind of knocking you, knocking you off your, off your kind of focus. Um, and then final thing is for us is potential, you know, is there the potential to create a category, category creating company, right? You know, and, and if, and if you do this, how big, big can it be? So, you know, what I like to talk about a lot is when you add those five P's together, um, when we do what we do, uh, you know, from whiteboard to kind of scale at that whiteboard session, you have to flip your mental model upside down. It has to be completely different. You know, I like to, you have to actually say, rather than why can't someone do something, you have to ask yourself, why can someone do something? And if that someone can do something, um, who would be that person to do it? And how would you do it? So it's a completely different model. Cause like, right, look, we see, you know, a couple thousand deals a year and we say no to a lot of folks, but you know, every once in a while you find that, and, and it comes down to the founder, right? Cause that founder is going to be like, oh my gosh, okay, if, if someone's going to do it, is this the founder that's going to do it? Is this the founder that's going to take on the giants? Is this the founder that's going to create the new market? So it's a completely different way of thinking. It's actually exciting. Hmm. You know, we don't get everyone right, but you find these great people. Um, and, and many of the founders become our friends, by the way, just because you go through such hard times together because you know it's going to be painful. I, and by the way, the, I think the fifth P I forgot to talk about is patience. Patience is really important because it ties into a few things. First of all, you have to be patient that things aren't going to get there overnight because the hardest problems are going to take longer. You have to be patient that, that, you know, people like the venture capitalists want you to go do things faster. And, and inherently they may not be the right thing to do is burn all your cash and try to go faster when you're not really at truly product market fit. And then patience in terms of founders finding the right partner for them who understands that there might be a few different twists and turns along the way before you're really ready to go. So those are the things that we kind of look for. And then we kind of test that with the founders. Like we do a lot of reference calling. We do a lot of role playing, like saying, hey, if you went down this path, how would that look? If you went down this path, how would that look? But underpinning all of it is that they have a history of building something technical, right? It doesn't, they don't have to be a founder before, but they've launched successful products. They know how to code. They know how to do these things. So that's kind of how we look at it. And, and then of course there's nuances with all of it. Yeah, no, that's really helpful. That five P framework. I, I am wondering though, and, and I, I could be completely off and everyone's going to be totally different here, but are there commonalities you see in terms of the advice these, these founders are seeking or, or the most direction you can provide for them? Um, I think that's a great question. So Look, there are a lot of great venture capitalists out there, a lot of great investors um, who are my peers. And uh, I think what the world has come down to, at least at our stage, is specialization, right? I mean, you know, and, and I think that we've specialized in terms of kind of helping founders at the whiteboard level who are enterprise and are highly technical. We've helped them try to become great CEOs. We surround them with other uh, founders who were technical founders that became great CEOs. We surround them with salespeople and go-to-market people who have taken it from zero to 10, 10 to 50, 50 to 100. Uh, and we help put them on the cap table. So when we lead around, we might partner with another VC, but then we'll bring in kind of our quote unquote friends. And we'll say, which ones do you want? These are, these are really good at developer-led companies. These founders are really good at SaaS. These founders are really good at this. And I always like to say it takes a village. You know, it's like an old African proverb. It takes a village to raise a child. It takes a village to raise a startup, right? So you got to bring that whole village together. And it's taken our team, it's taken me 24 years to build that village, right? To build that network. And I'm always learning. I'm always trying to add, you know, more folks to our village of experts. And so if you are a technical enterprise founder, you want to be CEO and, and you know, you want kind of hands-on, patient, 
um, advice, then we're the ones to go uh, go to, right? We're not for everyone. So I think part of it is, is that we've already biased ourselves towards this. And I think probably about, you know, 70% of our investments are more infrastructure developer oriented, like the sneaks of the world. But then our other 30%, we have the superhumans. We have customer with a K, which I never talked about. This is Brad and Jeremy who, who started their third customer support company to take down Zendesk. And they've raised a couple hundred million dollars as well. Um, so we've kind of got that SaaS application layer, but that's about 30%. So if you're a founders in these categories, then, and you want to, you want to learn kind of what Rahul did or what Guy did, because Rahul, Guy and Brad weren't Rahul, Guy and Brad five years ago. No one really knew who they were. And so that's what I love too, is finding these founders who have this chip on their shoulder that want to be Rahul, you know, I'm going to actually do this thing and I'm going to actually tell people how I did my thing. Right. Or Brad and Jeremy at at, at customer, how they're going to take down Zendesk and what their, they took a different approach or, or guy saying developer first matter. So we want to find the next Rahul, Brad, uh, uh, you know, Jeremy, et cetera. Um, and obviously we've got some great women founders as well in the portfolio that, that, you know, we want to do more of um, as well. Yeah. It's, you bring up such an interesting point. You could have this unique talent with regards to a person, but until they're in that system, they're not going to reach that, that overall potential. So it's really funny to watch someone's trajectory once that they get involved with one of these tribes. And it's funny that the fat tale of the 24 years of you building this tribe, I mean, just this, the access that the companies you invest in now have access to is, is pretty remarkable. So it, it's probably been really fun for you to be able to watch that. It, it is. It, it, I kind of feel like we're just hitting our stride right now, Sean, because it took 24 years is it building it drip by drip, brick by brick, uh, a lot of no's. I mean, when Elliot and I started, you know, raising a venture capital fund, you don't know how good you are for 10, 10, 12 years, right? Mm -hmm. I mean, and the thing is, people think that venture capital is this glorious thing. Oh, you're a venture capitalist, you're this, you're that. But the reality is, Elliot and I started with a million dollar fund in 2010. We didn't take salary for a few years. Our next fund was 16 million. We started out with 10, and then it, we took a while to, to raise that uh, raise that last bit. Uh, and then fast forward, fund four, by the way, which people say, gee, that puts you on the map. You, have, you raised over $100 million, which is well over your target of 75. You also raised an opportunity fund, which never existed to, to you know, back up the truck and your biggest winners. But the reality of it is that took us, I was talking to our council the other day. Um, the first time we sent the documents out to the final, final close of fund four took us 22 months. 22 months. So, so I just want to tell people, like, I understand the pain that founders go through. And it's not like people were throwing money at us, you know, from the very beginning, it was brick by brick, and it still was. Um, and finally, I think, you know, things have changed. <laughs> you know, things have changed as the companies have have hit in their trajectory, the ones that we said, hey, but this one, this one's gonna be really good. This founder is really awesome. But things have flipped, the models flipped completely for us. But it took it took us 10 years. I'm just not, I'm not joking. Some people may have come out um, from the places where the pedigree, cause, cause a lot of it's about pedigree. Like I didn't come from the top five firm, you know, we're not in Silicon Valley. I didn't go to Stanford or Harvard, as I said before, which still some, sometimes it matters to folks. Um, so we're in New York, we're doing enterprise, we're doing deep tech. Like, isn't that like media, isn't that like, and by the way, you know, I'll tell you in fun four, 10 of our first 15 investments are global. Like they, you know, we just did deals in Ireland, uh, Par uh, Paris, London, Vancouver, you know, San Francisco, only one is in New York. So just like you're investing all over the world at the very beginning. Shouldn't you be able to drive to the drive to their office? You are based in New York. You're doing deep tech. Shouldn't you be in Silicon Valley? So I think everything we've done has been bucking conventional wisdom, which is why we never fit into a box. And, and finally, like when I was telling an investor the other day, I'm like, 
just want to tell you anything that you can think about that's in a box, we're not in a box. Mm-hmm. So if, if, if that doesn't fit for you, then we're not for you. Like I want people to understand that we're going to, we're, we're innovating, we're trying new things. We're going to continue to try new things. Um, and so that, that's kind of the, the other piece of it too. You know, that the, the other part of the business. Yeah, this is, this is what I love, just absolutely flipping models on their head. And it's so funny, just the, the overnight success for you guys, right? I mean, absolute decade. So I love hearing that because I think so often, especially in today, we're looking for that overnight success and it just, yeah, it just doesn't happen. I, I love that, Sean. And by the way, I would, I, I just have to tell you that I would never be able to do this without my, my partner, my wife, uh, Kathy, she, Elliot calls her the silent third partner. I remember that this goes back to kind of who you know and who you are. And, and the support, you want to find people that make you better um, and support you. And I remember that in 2010, I was getting uh, offers to join some Silicon Valley firms. But I'd be like one of 10 partners, like, you know, I'm being the only East Coast partner because New York was starting to get hot at the time. And, and, and I was like, Kath, I'd have to fly back a week at a time. She's like, Ed, I know you. You would be miserable. You'd be absolutely miserable. I'd rather you, I'd rather you not make any money for two years. I'd rather you'd have all our savings um uh and have you be happy and kind of because i know this is you i know you want to start something i know this is i know i know you have an idea of how to do things and she's stuck with us and every part of our success comes down to having you know a super supportive partner who believes in you and she you know there are times that were that were really rough where we couldn't raise the capital and do the other things that we needed to do and she she stuck with us so i would just say that to anyone out there just make sure that you have someone that is there in your corner um you know kind of helping you because it's going to be hard yeah, no, I mean, that's something I absolutely identify with. Uh, my wife, fully supportive there. And it's funny, I mean, you, you go down to those deep truths. I mean, they're going to hurt. You're going to face some harsh realities. But I mean, at the end of the day, you have that person in your corner and they're going to look in your eye, you in the eye and they're going to be basically be like, you're, you can do this. I'm going to fully support, but you better not half-ass it. And so it sounds like you yes. and I both have uh, <laughs> supporting people in our in our corner there. Absolutely. I almost want to flip the question and ask you about how you started kind of your whole podcast because you started from nothing too, clearly. And I would love to have that conversation some other time about how you kind of just crank through it. And like now you have one of the top podcasts out there. Yeah, I'm definitely not going to let you uh, grab the mic on this. I I want to dive too much into your story. But uh, you you were saying something a few minutes ago about this taking some of these these, these payoffs in venture capital a decade, a decade plus. That gets back to feedback loops. So I'm wondering early on how you were really reading those feedback loops and knew if you were in the right trajectory or not. Um, You know, as a company or as our firm? As a firm. Yeah. Well, it's one of those things that I kind of go goes back to courage and conviction. It's celebrating the the like the little wins. Uh, I'll give you a good story. Like a company called Big ID. Uh, the founders are Dimitri and Nimrod. Um, you know, I kind of were that first check kind of in their in their uh, in their first round back in the day, and they had started this company, uh, Big ID, to solve the um, PII problem. You know, if you're a large enterprise, how do you know what personal information you have on Sean? Um, it could be located in 30 different systems all over the world. Hmm. And up to that point in time, no one had organized the data so that if you actually said, where's my data, um, that you could actually get the quick answer. And uh, that was six months before GDPR passed. I remember when we made the investment, we were like, look, at the very least, if, um, if they can automate that process of finding PII, like when a target got hacked, you know, we, we could probably make some money off of that. There's probably a $500 million to $1 billion business there. If this GDPR thing passes, and actually has teeth, if, if, then it could be actually even massive, right? Um, so, so but the thing is, is that Dimitri went out and Nimrod went out to raise money in the Valley and they tried to start with $10 million and everyone said no. They came back with hat in hand like, all right, I was like, look, 
you guys try to boil the ocean. Let's start with one little, little narrow problem, which is called data discovery and start there and we'll give you money. And by the way, who's moving to Israel? Because <laughs> they said they're going to build Israel. So Nimrod's like, great, I'll move to Israel. So Nimrod moves to Israel. Um, uh, Dimitri stayed in New York. And I fast forward, I remember they got their first cu customer. It was a top, top 50 kind of company. Um, and they're about to run out of money. They didn't have the PO signed, so it wasn't officially a customer, but if you called the, called the customer, like, yeah, yeah, we're gonna sign the next two months. And they're try out trying to raise another round of venture capital and um, no one would fund them. I'm like, hey guys, we'll give you more money, mm -hmm. right? Like, like we just knew that the sign was that they built the product, they're about to have their first customer, but it wasn't signed, but we're like, oh, we'll give you guys more money to fast forward. You know, they, then they actually um, uh, were about to, they wanted to raise more money because like we gave them enough money to last like six months, but not to like last a long time. And, uh, and they still can get, they had their second customer, another top 50 customer, wasn't fully signed and they weren't getting the, the valuations and term sheets. They wanted like, oh, we'll give you more money. So then fast forward, fast forward, the, the greatest thing ever was that um, no one believed in them. No one believed that GDPR thing was real. They're at RSA Security, which is the biggest conference out there. And there's something called RSA Innovation Sandbox, which is like a competition for the top startup. Um, super vetted, you know, some of the top, you know, kind of uh, investors and security professionals are on this panel. The day that, that Dimitri was uh, presenting, <laughs> Mark Zuckerberg that morning was in Congress testifying about privacy. <laughs> and, and so, wow, guess what? Dimitri won the competition. <laughs> <laughs> Timing, it's, but if you wanted to start and start that company the day that Mark started, it's too late. He started it two and a half, three years before that. He won the competition and then the rest is history. I mean, fast forward, he's probably raised 120 million plus. He's got, you know, 20 of the first, you know, top, you know, fortune 100 as customers. But, but, you know, that's an example of the little data points along the way where even other people weren't funding it. We were funding it because we saw the product, we saw the iteration, we saw the team that was building. So you see these other data points around it, you know, because a lot of the things that, that, I, that I talk about too, is that you can tell if things are gonna be successful early or not uh, with two things. One is uh, product velocity, you know, how quickly you're shipping product and iterating on product. And the other is hiring velocity, which goes hand in hand with product because if you don't have the engineers to build, then, you know, and it takes you six months from the time I give you a check and you're still just two people, then things are slow, right? So those two things, and that generates momentum. And so with like that company or some of our other companies, you can see that momentum coming fast out of the gate. If you see things get installed, you kind of have to talk to the founder and say, hey, you know, what is stalling you? Is it that you feel like the initial idea is not the right idea? Do you need some more research? But you have to always dive in because you need to generate that momentum to get to that next place. And I absolutely love hearing all this. I'm just thinking, you know, 25 years into your career, what do you think now just assessing those 25 years is your comparative advantage? Oh, man. Um, I think, you know, what I'm always trying to think about is how to learn from the past, uh, learn from the mistakes, learn from the misses, learn from what worked out well, and continue iterating, to be honest with you. And and so that that's kind of, I'm always, I'm, I'm always a, a lifelong learner. Hmm. And I'm always thinking on the weekends and Saturday morning when I'm writing my newsletter or Sunday, just reflecting on how can I do this better? How do I make sure that I don't fall trapped to survivorship bias? Um, but ultimately, Sean, it goes back to what we look for in founders. I'm passionate. Uh, I love this. Man. I, I just, I love this. You I'll outwork it. you. I, I love this. I will outwork you. I'll bring the team in. Like we will do this. Right. And, and so like we want, and, and I just, I just love, I couldn't see myself doing anything else. Um, and so that's part of it is I absolutely love doing this. And finally, 
all the things that we said that we wanted to do. The cloud is coming in 2010. We're going to start a specialist seed fund in enterprise. Like all of a sudden, the pendulum swung to enterprise about two years ago, which was like, wow, I've been talking about this for a long time, but no one really paid attention to us. And frankly, I didn't mind it, uh, honestly. Like I like kind of plowing our, our heads down and waking up like, oh man, cloud is, is, is big, right? Developers are big. Um, so I think it's constantly trying to challenge ourselves and not resting on laurels and just kind of, I feel like we're going to outwork and, and I'll try to outthink. Um, and I will not kind of just stand still and just say like, we've done well, like that's, that's not acceptable. Hmm. Yeah, this is one of those ones I wanted to ask. And then throughout this conversation, I, I just kept writing down more things like, oh, my gosh, is this what he's going to say? And you, you can see just the amount of work. And it gets back to that lifelong learner throughout your career, the ability yeah. to compound that on top of each other, little wins here, little learning lessons there. I'm wondering, though, you talk about even doing your newsletter on the weekend. What's your information diet like? How, how do you stay on top of trends, founders, all of these things? Yeah, so, so look, I learned the most from just talking to, to founders. I mean, like to me. Um, I, I think I guess what I like to say, my partners and I talk about this, is that we want to find founders that see the future. Hmm. My job is not to see the future; it's to find founders that can see the future. Maybe not ten years ahead, like I said on the go, like the go-to-meeting side might have been two years too early because if we had hold, held on for a little bit, but see the future. And so, talking to founders always, I think we learn a lot. Two is just kind of being in the in the board meetings and and just outside the board meetings, the, the daily conversations that we have um, with our founders in the portfolio as they're navigating kind of. You know, scaling issues or closing new customers or thinking about go to market. Third thing would be my team. Like we're always chatting together and kind of learning from each other. And the fourth would be my other friends in the industry, you know, other founders that we talk to, other other VCs and kind of coalescing that. And then I'll read in the morning. Like I typically, my schedule has changed during COVID. Like I used to get up um, like at 4.30 or 5 in the morning and, and do cross, go to the CrossFit box with my wife at 5.30. Uh, and then, you know, I'd come back and just, you know, read for an hour or, or look at my email and then I'd go to the city. Clearly that's changed. <laughs> so now I've kind of gotten to the point where I get maybe like at 637, I'll, I'll work for like an hour and a half. And then like, you know, we have our own kind of workout situation here at, at home. Uh, I'll get a workout kind of like at 10 a.m. And just clear that, like that I got to clear my head out, you know, to kind of just forget about everything and only focus on that one thing. And then uh, and then I'll get on, you know, in the morning, I'll usually get on some calls with Europe. And then the evening you do uh, the West Coast, and then you have your meetings in between. But you know, I, I just every day I, I at least spend an hour, hour and a half, kind of reading or listening to podcasts or something, just to kind of um, make sure I stay fresh because there is so much to know, and you're never going to know everything. And yeah. that's kind of the other exciting part about about this job. Yeah, it's, it's one of the fun parts for sure. I'm wondering this this slight change in schedule. Do you think you're more productive and thinking clearer during this time? I gotta tell you, uh, I am. I was telling someone the other day. I obviously feel guilty or criminal in a way because, like, the world is falling apart. There's a lot of people that aren't doing well, um, frankly, and that that makes me kind of sad. But on the other hand, just traveling. Like last year, I traveled so many miles. I mean, right even before the pandemic hit, I was in Paris, London, San Francisco at the end of February, early March, and by not traveling, I've been way more productive. I gotta tell you, just having a routine. Um, getting used to the Zooms and doing everything else. I do miss the face-to-face -face contact. I do miss the dinners. I do miss the bonding with kind of all the founders. Um, but we're trying to find other ways to do it over Zoom. Hmm. But yes, productivity has increased uh, substantially. Hmm. I got to be, be honest with you. Yeah. Uh, a minute ago, you were mentioning the team, and it, it seems to be this reoccurring theme. I'm wondering, though, is, is there a particular skill or mindset of yours that you just find hardest to pass on to even the most elite members of your team? I would just say that it's funny. Uh, someone once joked that being a venture capitalist uh, is like training a fighter pilot. 
it takes 10 years and $30 million lost to actually train a VC. <laughs> and this is back early in the day, you know, things, things have all accelerated. Now this is back in the late nineties, but things have all accelerated now. And I think that it's just kind of, it's an apprenticeship in a way. And, and, you know, I think, um, osmosis, right. I, I think, helping people flip their framework. I think people aren't used to, uh, used to thinking like what I mentioned earlier is why can someone do something, you know, just, and why can someone defy the odds? Like, how does that happen? So not only seeing that why, but also seeing the people that have done it before, mm. like, let's go back and just look at kind of all the things that were against all three or four or five of our top companies so far, there are a lot of things and yet they kept sticking with it. So and I think that it's easy to say like, hey, so I can see the future, I can bet someone, but you actually kind of have to look back um, at some of your successes uh, and failures and, and learn from that. And so I think that osmosis takes time. You can't just have someone learn that overnight. Yeah, you bring up a really interesting point. And, and certain times, it's not even that someone needs that bit of advice. It's almost just knowing that someone else has done that before and then that's possible for them. It's just that that mindset, just it almost unlocks this wall or a screen's move for them. That, that, that is, you're, you're absolutely right. And you just have to see it and experience it yourself. And, and I think ultimately when you actually, when, when my teammate writes that check for the first time where they're seeing the future and they're living with that uh, on there, cause they're the ones pressing for that opportunity. That's when you really, really absorb everything. Hmm. I'm thinking about that absorption that you just mentioned. Has there been just a point in your career where you feel like you were just learning in dog years where everything was just happening faster and just like your personal growth was that just some crazy level? You know, it's funny. I, I just feel like every day is like that right now. Still, I, I gotta be honest with you. You know, the only difference is today versus before that village, uh, that, that I have that we can bring to bear. Right. Cause I always ask about what is the unfair advantage that your partner is going to bring to the table? Um, now we have a village of experts, just any category possible, really successful folks, you know, uh, feel blessed to have that. But back in the day, it was, I was a village of one. <laughs> so, so it's like, Hey, you're, you're looking, look, I'll work hard for you, but I don't have anyone else that will surround you on the table. And then it was a village of five and a village of 10. Now we have a village of, you know, of hundred, 200 folks. But, um, but that's the only difference now is that, that we can actually, I can pick up the phone or, or reach out and I can pretty much get to anyone now. And, I, and before they're like, who are you? Who's both start? Who's anything else? Um, look, frankly, that's still like that today too, which is fine. And I always want to find the way that I can motivate our team and myself to kind of, you know, keep that chip on the shoulder. But that's the big difference is that I'm always learning, but we just have a network now that, that people have like, oh yeah, man, you guys, pretty, pretty cool. Like I'd love to work with some one of your companies, right? Cause I think, I think, you know, it'll be a good chance of being successful. Yeah. I'm thinking about that village of one mentality. And, and for those people that in the successful companies, they're able to attract that additional talent and build their own network there. What have you seen in the best network builders? Oh, they're, they're they actually treat it as a job. Yeah. I mean, they're, they're obsessive about finding time or carving out time in their cal calendar to constantly network with people. And, and you know what, the founders that actually hang out with other founders to share learnings and all the other stuff. I mean, you can see that there are some of some of the folks, um, you know, th that are doing it too is, um, on the developer first approach, um, you know, in terms of building community, I like to take, it usually takes a couple of years, right. To kind of build that community. So you've got to be invested in that too. You know, we need to know the plan early, how you're going to go kind of, you know, back in the day, it was like, how do you go uh, present at the events? You know, how do you do the hyper local events, right? It starts even hyper local mm -hmm. to kind of get that going. I mean, it doesn't, doesn't happen overnight. Um, but you can see that it, it's part of their ethos. Hmm. 
uh, as we wrap up here, one of the things I'm really intrigued by, I know you were an early blogger early on a while ago and still this. Uh, you, 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 found, you found some of those from 2003 or four? The, the, the internet's yeah. an, an unbelievable thing. But uh, <laughs> I'm always curious, someone, someone at your level, when you're distilling down your thinking, what does that look like? How does an idea hit you enough where you say, I'm going to take the time to write on this? That's, that's so great. So it's funny, like my blogging has really turned into tweets or tweet storms lately. And um, it's, it's kind of like, oh, I've, I just had this conversation three times, you know, with three different founders this week. Let me just share something. Or maybe me and my team were talking about something that was the second time it happened and just share something. And, you know, as you can tell, that kind of my thing is all about trying to how to distill it in the shortest way possible. And that's such a challenge to think through from, you know, from that perspective to share something that, that's meaningful. Like uh, I was actually thinking about, it took me 20 years, 20 plus years of learning to distill kind of a couple of weeks ago, how, uh, how investors can be great partners to founders. Mm-hmm. And I called it like the, like the three C's or the three CH's, right? I, I kind of have these things, right? But it was, you know, a good investor knows when to cheer, right? And, and, and a good investor also knows when to challenge and a good investor also knows when to chill, right? Mm-hmm. So, so I kind of think about, but that took, I mean, but that sounds so simple, doesn't it? I mean, that took 24 years of really thinking about, it, but, but the thing is, is that, uh, founders don't want cheerleaders all the time because you're not going to help them get build a better better business. So when things are going really well, you want to challenge them. How do you add another zero? How do you how do you do something better? Um, right? You know. So that that's kind of when they need when when they're actually kind of in the dumps. Right? When things are going hard is when you want to cheer them on. Like, come on, you can do it. You can do. You know, you can do this. Come on, let, let's go through it. And then there's just sometimes you know what they're working on a big product release or things are just incredibly busy right now. You just need to chill. Yeah. Nothing. <laughs> wait for them to pull in. But, but that has taken 24 years of wisdom to really distill that in a way that makes sense. But I find that something that I always think about every time we, we work with founders is where are they mentally in that? Where's their headspace there? Cause everyone's always talking about the X's and O's um, you know, kind of like the, like the, but, but the mental aspect, as you know, it, it's a brutal, brutal business, you know, to start your own thing. Yeah, it's so funny. I was just talking to a mentor the other day just about this, that like these universal truths and, and the deepest truths, uh, they're just the simplest things, but they're just so hard in practice and it takes so much real time experience to actually be able to distill them down. So it's something I really appreciate of you and uh, definitely definitely learn from there. Uh, I am wondering though, as we wrap this up, uh, I feel fortunate I get to have these great conversations. Is there anyone throughout history, they could be alive, dead, just not a family member or friend, that if you were gonna sit down for an evening grab the microphone, just have a great conversation. Who would that be? Wow. That's a really good question. Um, you know, who, who I admire is, is Warren Buffett, hmm. uh, in a way. And, and while he is not a tech investor or whatnot, what I like about Warren Buffett is that he, he said that, look, you know, he's in Omaha. He does his thing, right? He, he has his thesis. He does his thing. He stays true to who he is. And and, and, he, and he's been, he's a good person and he, and he stuck with it all, all the way along. And, and I think that um, I kind of like, I kind of like that because I kind of feel the same way about us in the way being in New York, doing enterprise, we're not in the place that was kind of seen as a hot enterprise space. We're not in the heart of the Valley, but that allows us to have headspace to think creatively and differently. Um, and, I, and I think that was, you know, something that, that I do admire about him. And he started with nothing too. I mean, you, you watch some of those videos about what he did and how he did it. Um, it was just kind of, one thing after another, right? Heads down, finding one opportunity and then building from there. So I, I do admire kind of, you know, um, what he's done. 
it's really funny actually that that was your answer. Uh, so I, in, in preparation for this, I kind of just like distilled down. I thought you to a core, and it was true to himself. Everything you did might have been against the grain, but it was so true to you. So it's just uh, you you can see where where you pull from other things, and I'm even one of those people learning from you, be, being true to your core and following what is your deepest belief. So now I appreciate hearing that answer. I'll, I'll tell you one other thing. I'm reading. Uh, I have a great book that's really interesting. I'm really into uh, mythology and classical stories. I think my daughter actually wants to be a, a classical kind of major, but uh, I'm reading this book uh, by Joe Campbell called The Hero uh, with a Thousand Faces. And and it goes through just the, um, and, and he's a professor, I think, at Columbia, but it goes through kind of the story of myth and the, and the story arc of a hero. You know, hero comes in, there's a, there's a challenge, they rise to the challenge, and then usually there's a tragedy and somehow they rise from the ashes, right? So just that whole thing reminds me of founders just every day. Just kind of, I always like to look at history and not that history repeats itself, but history rhymes in a way. And I was trying to like, look, and, and I'm thinking about that story. Every founder has a story arc too. And it's always kind of like that as well. And so I'm always trying to tie disparate pieces together. Yeah, Joseph Campbell, uh, one of the, one of those geniuses in terms of making things so simple and breaking down <laughs> all all of history <laughs> just into those seven steps. Yeah, he, he, I admire that so exactly. <laughs> that that to me is the essence of genius is when people can do that. Yeah, absolutely. Well, Ed, this has been too much fun. You're someone I've mentioned, learned through uh, so much throughout the years. Continue to learn from. This has been a true pleasure. Any parting advice or places that you want listeners staying connected with you or anyone who's got a great idea uh, to hit you guys up at Bold Start? Yeah, just, you know, you can actually find me at, at twitter.com slash edsim, E-D-S-I-M. Um, and you can DM me, reach me at any point in time, and I'll share kind of some of the things that I'm going through uh, and learning. Um, and the last thing I can say is that, hey, if you're passionate and you have a vision, uh, stick with it because it's, you know, you're going to find 10 different things and 10 different people to say, no, you can't do it. Um, and if you believe in yourself, then you'll find a way. Awesome. Ed, amazing stuff once again. And thanks again for joining us on What Got You There. Thanks, Sean. You guys made it to the end of another episode of What Got You There. I hope you guys enjoyed it. I really do appreciate you taking the time to listen all the way through. If you found value in this, the best way you can support the show is giving us a review, rating it, sharing it with your friends, and also sharing on social. I can't tell you how much I appreciate it. Looking forward to you guys listening to another episode.